city streets and the quiet town boulevards. The scene of the crime is the focal point of every investigation. Here, you've joined the team on a thread of evidence where your mind will be open to the exciting science of forensic investigations. Dr. Ron is a nationally renowned forensic criminologist who leads the nation's finest forensic death investigations team. Your host, Dr. Ron Martinelli, will lead this investigation. Blue-on-blue death means, essentially, that one officer mistakenly kills another officer in the line of duty. And these always take place during high-risk situations. So with me today to discuss this, one of our forensic homicide experts, Bob Prevo. And Bob, that concept is referred to, as you well know, because you've done it for so many years, deconfliction. So let's unpack that bag and, and talk about that investigative concept. Sure. Um, let me go back uh, some years when, as you just mentioned, we had some blue on blue tragic shootings. And, you know, so most of them are, are, most of them unfortunately are narcotics investigations or undercover investigations where one officer doesn't know who the other officer is because they're not wearing uniforms. And so it becomes a very dangerous situation. If you're in the same place at the same time and you don't know who each other is, uh, that can lead to some tragic results. So what happened uh, back in the 90s was the uh, the government came up with an idea of what they call deconfliction. In other words, how do we prevent uh, DEA and a local agency, and maybe they don't know each other, from ending up in the same parking lot doing a narcotics uh, deal with two undercover officers from different agencies who don't know each other, and, and a tragic uh, outcome happens. So what they did was they came up with these uh, funded programs from the Office of National Drug Control Policy, and it's a federal program, and they set up uh, what they call HIDAS, and HIDAS stands for High Intensity Drug Trafficking Area, and they started setting these up around the country to uh, add some services for narcotics investigations and, and other investigations, but mainly narcotics in high drug trafficking areas. So as you can imagine, New York, L.A., Miami, these were all the first ones that were set up. Uh, the one I was involved in was in the San Francisco Bay Area. We were established in 1997. And what the concept is, is that all local, state, and federal agencies within a Haida area uh, come together and they agree to uh, share information. And this was kind of a, a, a kind of a new concept because, you know, traditionally not all agencies like to share confidential information with other agencies. Sure, especially you know federal agencies and right. uh, and municipal agencies, right? Right. And so what happened here was the. Uh, you know, the U.S. attorney was involved, FBI director was involved, DEA um, uh, director, and we started setting up these HIDAs around the country. And the concept was, I'll give you an example for the San Francisco Bay Area. We have 100 agencies in, in, in the nine counties. Well, 100 agencies, local, state, and federal agencies, it, it's, it's impossible for everybody to coordinate things at, at, at that level. So what we did was we came in, and this is similar for the whole country, and we uh, go to the chiefs of police associations, the uh, special agents in charge of federal agencies, uh, like Bureau of Narcotic Enforcement, Highway Patrol, and we all come together and we agree 
that we are going to share information. And the purpose of sharing in the information is that it's kind of like air traffic control. We don't want a narcotics unit ending up in a Walmart with another narcotics unit. And they don't know who each other is, but they're working the same case. And guns get pulled and, and, and nobody knows who they are. And you can get some tragic results. And in the past, this is what's happened. So the, the way it works is they submit their information uh, when they're going to when they're going to do an operation, what day, who's involved, and they submit it to a, a, a deconfliction center, and this is shared with uh, everybody. So we can look at a map basically and say, okay, on a certain date and time, they're going to be operating in this area. So let's say another agency uh, is going to let's say one agency is going to sell narcotics, and the undercover officer is dealing with a, a suspect who turns out to be an undercover officer from another agency who's going to buy <laughs> narcotics, all right? And this is happening, okay? And so they end up in the same uh, Walmart parking lot at the same time, unbeknownst to each other who they are. Well, this air traffic control system deconfliction thing prevents that from happening. And it's and it's been a, a success all, all around the country. And you can go on Google and, and Google Haida and deconfliction, and it'll basically... Uh, it basically just explain to you generally how this works. So, Bob, how, how are people chosen for that type of assignment? I mean, I know you had, you know, uh, immense qualifications for that. D does everybody have the qualifications that you have as a homicide investigator? Uh, it's a combination of homicide and working narcotics. Uh, and then, of course, they want a, a manager. You're going to manage a, a, sure. a unit. And they're looking for somebody that can hopefully bring together in our case, 100 agencies, and you know, put out fires, uh, uh, you know, get along with everybody, get everybody on the same page, and and work together to, to get this happen. And it takes time to develop a trust with each other. Okay, sure. and so this is the this is the type of thing. And it, it took a year to get this thing up and running. But I'll tell you what, it's uh, it's a lifesaver. It's efficient, and. Uh, the other thing good about it is that when you do an operation, all that information goes into a, a database and and all the people we work goes into a, a central database. So uh, let's say I let's say I run Ron Martinelli and uh, I don't get a hit. OK, the database says you're not a crook, you're not an informant, you're nobody. Well, three days later, let's say uh, a DEA runs your name uh, and they don't get a hit. Well, what they're going to do is say, uh, uh, Bob and Ron, you need, or Bob and DEA, you need to get together because you both ran Ron, and you're obviously both interested in Ron, and you should talk to each other. And that's okay. the extent. That's and that's called that's called a pointer index system. Okay. And that deconflicts problems with, let's say you're working the same person. Well, instead of independently doing it, now the idea is to share information, and it's and it's a safer way to op, to do a case and a more efficient. Yeah, because agencies classically hit pocket information, right? Uh, they do ex uh, now with this new system, uh, and it's been expanded to you know white collar crime and other and other areas where it's it's very efficient. It brings agencies together, and uh, I'm happy to say that the leadership of all these agencies, local, state, and federal, they they believe in the system, uh, and they require their officers to participate. It, it, there's no there's not an option on this thing. They they all sign agreements to that they will all share information which is great well it just sounds like this is an immense uh, logistical undertaking 
It, it is in the beginning to get everybody on the same page, but once it's going, it's a very smooth system. And, uh, you know, like, uh, you know, we called ours Bay Nin Bay Area Narcotic Information Network. L.A. calls it the L.A. Clearinghouse. Uh, San Diego has a San Diego Nin Narcotic Information Network. So all these HIDAs can work together. And, and they're all on the same nationwide database, basically. So you can you can call any of them, uh, or you can get on electronically and get information. Which is, you know, before before the '90s, we had we had no way to do this kind of stuff. Sure. Well, how about uh, you know, reach back in your memory, and uh, can you pull out a case where you can give us an example of how you uh, had a, a blue on blue shooting and how you were able to analyze that and then debrief uh, and how, because I think our listeners would uh, would get a uh, more context out of it uh, to show us just what kind of things can happen out there in the field and how we resolve those things through forensic investigations and using uh, this type of system. Sure. Now, the example I'm going to give you is not basically a narcotics deconfliction system, but this is a, a blue and blue shooting we had in a bank robbery. And, and the bank robbery, in the bank robbery, we had four undercover officers respond to a bank and engage the uh, suspect inside the bank. Unfortunately, one of our officers was, was killed uh, by gunfire. And the other officers, uh, the, the under, undercover officers were in there and they uh, shot and killed the uh, suspect. The problem came after that. The, the, when our officer was down, of course, we wanted to get him medical help as soon as we could. The undercover officer uh, who was near the door uh, had just been transferred to narcotics. He had come from patrol and he just started working narcotics. When he ran out the front door to get help, he still had the gun in his hand, and he was immediately shot by a patrol officer. Fortunately, he wasn't he wasn't seriously injured, so he was okay. But it it shows that you know the officers have to keep in mind the mindset of what's going on. Okay. You've just been transferred to a narcotics unit. You've got to get in that mindset of you're now undercover. Nobody knows who you are. When you run out of door, you know you're just another person in plain clothes. You're not a you're not a cop to everybody else, even people you work with. And when you come out of a bank, I don't know if you're looking at a bank, but you can't see inside the doors and the windows. Sure. Okay. Those windows are uh, are constructed such that you can't see inside. So when somebody runs out that door with a gun. Your first instinct, and you've just heard four gunshots coming from inside that bank, and now you see a guy running out the front door. Right. You, you're going to re just react. Of course, you're. And that, unfortunately, uh, it, unfortunately, it happened, but but fortunately, it didn't result uh, in in a serious injury. So, and my advice is, you know, when you when you get to a plain clothes assignment. You need to change your mindset. People, you don't have a uniform on. People don't know who you are, even your own people. I think that's uh, I think that's well a well taken point. You know the the resolution of blue on blue shootings can come can be you know quite complicated. You know Dr. Paul Michael and I were recently talking about uh, a very big case that we had in Lakewood, Colorado, uh, where officers uh, had surrounded a house and an entry team was established with a, a couple of SWAT operators. It wasn't a SWAT operation. I don't think this would have happened at all had SWAT been you know assigned and deployed but basically uh, these guys go into a house and they're doing a search for any outstanding suspects in the house but nothing was communicated whatsoever and they had a helicopter that was flying above 
uh, keeping wa overwatch on everything, but no communications was taking place between the elevated platform of the helicopter and the incident command. Right. And so guys were around the curtilage or the exterior, uh, you know, of the house, and one of the officers, unfortunately, was on top of a fence looking over, and he had a gun in his hand, and when the first SWAT officer uh, came outside, uh, he illuminated this guy, and even though the officer was in, in full uniform, it's unclear whether the officer uh, noticed that and, uh, and, and shot and killed him immediately. So, you know... Yeah, I've, you know, I've done literally hundreds of, of search warrants, and planning is the most important part of, oh, of, of any search warrant. Of and, course it is. You know, you, you're going to, you know, you're going to take every photos of the house you're going to hit. You're going to pre-place your people where you want them. You're going to have a briefing. You can say, okay, this is where we want everybody. And do not come in the back of that house. Do not right. go, go or door. The entry team is going to go in the front door or, or whatever we decide. And that's it. Nobody else is going to come in that house until we tell you. And that's where a lot of problems used to happen was because everybody just, you know, they hear a noise in a room and they go through the door, and you know, they're not part of the entry team, and, and of course, guys aren't going to know that, and the problem is, you know, like, I worked in a regional task force where you don't know every officer of every police department. We have right. 20 police departments in our county, and you don't know everybody, so if somebody comes flying through the back door, I don't know who they are. Right. I, don't know if they, I don't know if they've been in the house, or they're hiding. I, I don't know who they are. Well, you know, and, in, this, in this case, it wasn't a narcotics op operation. Uh, but there was, you know, was a couple of members were, were gang members in that house. And, you know, how the whole case started was they were just drunk and outside and firing, right. you know, firing into the air. So it was a shots fired call. But, you know, communication, as you outlined, is, is such a key to everything we do. I mean, you know, you and I have together, I think, have been involved in hundreds of entries, uh, high risk entries into residences and things like that. But, boy, I'll tell you what. You've got to communicate. You got to know where you're going and what you're going to do. And if you don't, uh, you know these are the tragedies that can occur. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I've been, I went on a robbery. Uh, I had a robbery case one time. I had to go to another city about 100 miles away to do a search warrant for the person, and and you know, hopefully, the guy had the gun there. And so I went to the city. Uh, we went. We had a briefing, and they, we went out to the house. And it was very well planned. And they said. You're going to stay two blocks away, and that's as close you're going to get to this house till we call you, because nobody knows who you are, and we just don't need you near the house. We'll do the entry when it's secure. We will call you in, and then it's your scene. Right. But that's how you do it. And, and you're you're exactly right. You become the finder, uh, the person that finds all the evidence and you know documents the evidence and everything like that. And I think that's the perfect way to do it. You know, uh, you know, speaking about SWAT operations. Uh, these days, in, in tactical operations, uh, it goes on a point system. So actually, uh, the agency that's initiating the action uh, has a, a policy and procedure, at least they should. We, we hope this is going to become a, uh, a national model. And they have to articulate exactly what are the circumstances uh, that they need a SWAT team for. And every circumstance is worth so many points. So, in other words, you know, guy with a gun, that's worth so many points. Barricaded inside the house, that's so many points. Taken a hostage, that's so many points. And once we get to, usually the, it's 20 points, then uh, now a SWAT commander is going to be called on the phone, and they're going to run all that past him, and he's got a checkoff list, and he checks off, gets 20 points, and all of a sudden you got a SWAT call out, and, 
and people are en route. But the, the other thing about this is that it takes time, you know. Well, it does. And, and you know, the advantage we have is detectives versus patrol officers. Patrol officers are, are, are the, the most absolutely highest risk job because they, they get a radio call, they're going. They don't get to uh, spend all day planning out how they're going to attack a house or take somebody off. They're, they're going. Uh, whereas, you know, undercover, we, you know, we get the, the luxury of we get the search warrant. We plan how we're going to uh, hit the house, how we're going to arrest this person, even doing a traffic stop or buying narcotics. You know, we can take all the officer safety measures we need to, whereas the patrol officer, they don't have that luxury. And, and, it, and you know, my hat's off to them because it's uh, I remember when I worked patrol. Most of the time, you have no idea what you're walking into. Well, no, that's exactly right. And, you know, this year, uh, as, as of today, uh, we've had uh, 26 officers uh, murdered in the line of duty by firearms, uh, 60, almost 70% increase over last year, and which was a horrible year for us, and higher than we had in 2016. And, uh, you know, and, and, and I know you read my book, the, the Truth Behind the Black Lives Matter Movement and the War on Police, uh, we talked about this, and that was the highest number of officers murdered that we had seen uh, since you and I were on the job in the early 1970s, and before that, during the Bonnie and Clyde era in the early 1930s. So yeah, they, and they're and they're just I mean they're killing police officers who are just sitting there uh, eating lunch. We I are mean, yeah, we are literally losing one officer a week who's being murdered by a firearm, and that doesn't that doesn't count. The other officers that are killed in the light of duty and car crashes and and right. helicopters going down and you know things like that. You, you said it. It is a the uniform job is an extremely dangerous job. And you know one more thing I want to add, uh, and that is the officers that fire the least amount of bullets in the field are SWAT officers, and it's because of all those things you talked about, Bob: briefing, communication, time, planning. Uh, you know, they fire the least amount of rounds. Right. And, and even beyond what you were talking about, you know, the 20 point system, if, if I've got a, if I got somebody that wants to do a, a search warrant and, uh, you know, we look at their criminal record and, you know, they've been in shootings or they're high risk or something that I just stop right there. We're, right. we're not going to do it. SWAT is. Exactly. And, and, and yeah, you know, we're just not going to uh, uh, jeopardize. I mean, we do search warrants almost every day. And we're, we think we're pretty good at it, but we're nowhere near trained like SWAT is. We don't have their equipment uh, and, and, you know, and, their, and their expertise on, on a lot of this stuff. So we just, I'd rather have them do it, and, and then we'll be right, you know, come in behind them. Absolutely. Well, listen, let's, uh, let's move on to our, our next topic, which is going to be jail deaths, and we'll do that right after we take a break. You're listening to Dr. Ron Martinelli and homicide forensic expert Bob Prevo on a thread of evidence. Let the silent voices be heard. It's the rallying call that started it all. AmericaOutloud.com For a wide spectrum of programming from world and political news, societal and cultural stories, law enforcement, our military heroes, and much more. News blogs, informative podcasts, and entertaining videos. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. Now, you know, one of the things that forensic experts have to do is we have to 
uh, study and analyze cases that deal with serious injuries and deaths inside jail and correctional facilities. So don't forget that we not only have uh, you know, subjects out on the street that get uh, injured and killed uh, by police officers, uh, but we also have uh, people that are booked into jails or housed in uh, correctional facilities and state prisons that have a variety of problems. Uh, some are mental health issues, some are medical problems, some are gang-affiliated uh, issues, and they get seriously injured and they die. And some come in with uh, pre-existing mental health uh, or medical conditions. And so when these people are seriously injured or died, we put a death investigations team in there and uh, we try to uh, get to the bottom of the case and of course we're investigating post-incident but it's extremely interesting and a lot of these cases are quite complicated so Bob let's talk about uh, some of the jail deaths that, that you and I have uh, jointly and invested and, and separately investigated and I know you've got one out of San Bernardino California yeah, these cases are, are varied for their reasons and, and so on, but I thought I'd talk about one. This, this one's just kind of a, a, a brief one. Is a inmate who was brought in, uh, and I, I, I can't remember the crime, if it was auto theft or whatever, but he was a heroin addict. And when you bring a heroin addict into jail, you, you immediately have a medical problem because they're going to withdraw. And when they withdraw, they're, they're going to they're gonna have problems. And medical has to be really on top of them to find out if – it's something they can treat within the jail system or they need to go to a hospital uh, or, you know, get more serious medical attention. And this was a case where uh, they brought they brought the subject in. He went through classification. Now, classification merely uh, tells us where we can house this person. And in this case, uh, it was decided the best place to house him was in a, uh, a dormitory with other inmates who, would, who could actually keep an eye on him. And... So that was done. In fact, he had a cousin uh, in the same dormitory, and they um, they took care of him. He, he got to the point where he, you know, he wasn't eating. He was getting dehydrated, and it was getting pretty serious. And they were giving him, uh, you know, additional fluids and, and uh, uh, medical care. And one night, um, you know, they they go to bed, and the next morning he did not wake up. And one of the things that uh, that I Notice about this case was that uh, jails do what they call count, and they'll do count two or three times a day, depending on the jail. And they used to do a count uh, like a, one or two in the morning, three in the morning, to make sure everybody's there. Uh, you know, everybody came back from court. Nobody's uh, in, you know in a recreation hall, or you know they're visiting or disappeared. So they want to make sure everybody's there. And different agencies have different ways of doing it. This particular agency. When the officers go through and they do count, uh, they don't just go by and see if there's somebody in the bed that uh, the inmate's supposed to occupy. They actually go in there and they make everybody wake up and say their name and they make sure that they're, in other words, they can stand, they can say their name, um, they can look at them and, you know, they're, they're, they can't do obviously a whole psychological profile, but at least they can f find out if they can respond to a, a simple question and they seem, you know, reasonably okay which in this case they did. So uh, after that, between then and, you know, six o'clock in the morning, uh, this, this individual uh, went into withdrawal and he, and he died. And turned out he had a, another medical problem. But what, 
what helped that agency was their policy and procedure about how they did count. And they were able to say, yes, this is how we do it. You know, we, we took, you know, reasonable precaution um, to, to try and make sure this inmate was okay. So that's one, that's one type of a jail death case you'll get. And you'll find out if the agency is actually doing the, you know, a, a reasonable amount of care for the inmates. Right. You know, just so that the, our listeners understand what happens when someone gets booked into jail by a police officer is they go through a process that's referred to as triage. And so the triage process is both a medical and a mental health process where we find out if they have any pre-existing uh, medical problems, uh, any pre-existing mental health problems, if they're on prescription medication, uh, if they have any communicable diseases, and, you know, things like that. And so once we get the answers, you know, obviously if they're homicidal or suicidal. So once we get the answers to those questions, then it actually goes to a person that's referred to as the classifications officer. And the classification officer takes it a step farther and uh, asks about gang affiliations, asks about um, uh, if they uh, are a child molester or they have uh, any uh, sexual problems or what their sexual preference is because they don't want uh, these people uh, inside the, the correctional facility to, to be predated, right? They don't want them to be picked on and harassed or sexually assaulted by other inmates. They don't want, uh, if the person's in, a, in an opposing gang, they don't want the gang members that are in that unit or pod uh, to assault or kill them. So there's a lot of those things. And if they've got a pre-existing medical or mental health problem, uh, where are we going to house them? And I think you alluded to that where you said they went into what's referred to as GP or general population. So a person that's got a medical problem, depending on the nature and the seriousness of that medical problem, could be an observation or they could be in a, in a medical wing of the jail in the infirmary or they could be in a special housing cell where they have to be watched and they get put on what's referred to as the watch log or the watch list. And, you know, in California, uh, it's about every 15 minutes. Now, there is no prescribed time. So within the United States, uh, they go anywhere from 15 minutes to 20 minutes to, to a half an hour. Now, what you talked about, Bob, the count is so important because the rules and regulations that govern the way a correctional facility is uh, is run, especially like in the state of California, and other states have similar uh, types of codes. Well, in California, it's found in uh, Chapter 10, Title 15 of the Jail Operations Code, which basically uh, teaches uh, jail managers, supervisors, and line officers uh, how to handle these people when they come in. That's correct. And uh, and on the other side, the flip side of that, as you mentioned, uh, all of our county jails, state institutions, you know, they have registered nurses on duty 24-7. And you know, when this individual came in, they do a, they do a medical screen. They figure out you know what kind of medication he should be on. They're obviously going to monitor him for dehydration, fluid intake, uh, you know, all the medical stuff, and they will check on him uh, quite frequently. So that's another way they 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 try and we we have so much heroin uh, problems out here. Well, it's across the country, oh, sure. but sure. Uh, and and withdrawal when they go in, it's. It's uh, they're going to go through withdrawal and they have to deal with it. They can't send, obviously, everybody to the hospital. 
Well, that's true. But sometimes they need to go to the hospital. Sometimes so, they do. That's correct. You know, I had a case in Northern California uh, not too long ago where I had a similar type of guy. And, and what happened was uh, officers in, in a particular town uh, in the northern San Francisco Bay Area were dispatched out to the scene of a, uh, of a disturbance. It was a disturbance between a man and a woman that, that had a uh, relationship together. And uh, it was getting to be an abusive relationship. So the, the woman called the cops and the cops came out there. But at the same time, the woman said, look, uh, you know, my boyfriend is, and my living boyfriend's also a heroin addict. And so, you know, he's probably got drugs on him. Well, the police didn't pay too much attention to that. They didn't do a very good search incident to arrest. And so they put him in the backseat of the patrol car. And what was interesting in this particular patrol car, like we're seeing in so many cars now, everything's on video monitoring. And so the officer has a camera that points to the backseat of the car where the prisoner compartment is. And so I can literally watch uh, the officer driving and he was talking to his girlfriend on on a telephone and while on the cell phone and while he was doing that he wasn't paying attention to the prisoner well the prisoner got his handcuffs that was handcuffed behind his back got him around to the front of him reached into a pocket pulled out some drugs and swallowed a bunch of drugs and of course you can see it but the officer wasn't paying attention to his monitor and he never saw it so they take him to the police department, and what happened was the drugs that he swallowed, I guess the little baggie that the drugs were in, it broke, it ruptured, and now the guy's got drugs going into his system. So by time he, they bring him to the county jail, uh, he's looks like he's under the influence. Well, the uh, triage nurse didn't do a very good job looking at this guy, and he wasn't housed properly. And what happened was they put him in a cell, and uh, he expired in that cell during that evening. And what was interesting about that case is that this was in a pod that had a control room that was up into the ceiling. Okay, so one of the newer pods where they've got video coverage. But the cell that they put this guy in, you could not see except for the front cell door. So, and by the way, you could see through that cell door, but you couldn't see more than two feet inside that cell door. And so here's a guy that's laying on the cot, and the only thing you can see is his feet. And they never did the count that you, that you told us about, Bob, right? Where the inmates have to stand at the door and they have to, you know, physically, verbally, physically, you know, let the correctional officer know that that you know they're awake or whatever which is a state requirement you've got to have a verbal a, or and or a physical uh verification that that inmate's okay and, and failing to do that left them very liable oh abs absolutely and i'll tell you forensically uh how we handled that case and uh and the case ended up settling for a couple of million dollars uh, and I was working for the plaintiff at the time, is actually uh, we brought in our uh, video audiologist uh, who's on our death investigations team, and uh, he put a uh, testing device in there so we could hear what kind of sound levels came up because the correctional officer that was up in the, up in the control room, he had, 
said the intercom was on and he could hear the inmate uh, snoring, okay? So he said, I knew he was okay. I knew he was sleeping because I could hear he was snoring. Well, we replicated that and put the, uh, the uh, decimeter uh, both in the guy's room and with the uh, audio equipment in that cell and did the similar thing up in the control tower and we played it at various levels and we could not hear that noise in that control room with that intercom on all the way up. The other thing we did is we, uh, and I've got some special glasses that do this, that replicate what the human eye can see, and I put those glasses on, sat exactly where the correctional officer said he was sitting, looked exactly at that inmate's uh, cell door, and were able to verify uh, that he couldn't see that inmate's uh, laying down on that bunk like he said he could. You could only see his feet. Yeah, and, and the thing for officers to remember is when you write your police report and you put all that stuff in there, somebody like you or I is going to come along and verify that. Right. I don't think they think that far ahead. <laughs> well, they should be thinking that far ahead because that's what's going to get to them. And if, if, it, if, it can't, you know, if you can't see in that cell and see the guy, then don't put it in your report. Absolutely. And, you know, it's such an easy thing to do to take, uh, uh, you know, to take a, an hourly, uh, you know, watch and uh, make sure that all your inmates are OK. And uh, if you if the guy's on a medical watch or an observation log every 15 minutes, making sure that you get a visual, a verbal or a behavioral test to confirm that that guy is there. And you want to make sure that that is thoroughly documented on that watch report that hangs on the front door of the inmate cell. Hey, Bob, I think we've got enough time for you to briefly talk about that case that you had in Montana. This is, this is a case where uh, it's a very small county. Um, the, the, the jail is run at night by the, basically the dispatcher and whatever deputies out in the street. So they bring a kid in who's uh, uh, intoxicated and he's uh, not cooperative and they put him in a cell. And he continues to be non-cooperative, and he's making threats and everything. And he basically says to the officer, if, if, you, if you have my mother bring down my Valium, I guarantee you I'll behave. So the officer, the uh, deputy calls the mother, and she brings down the Valium. They give him two Valium. He says, I promise I'll calm down. I'll go to sleep. So they gave him two Valium, and within 20 minutes, he hung himself. Wow. So that's, so that's what started the whole thing. And... The, the problem is, is that when we investigated this, we investigated their policies, procedures, which were very minimal. And then we went to the state requirements. What does the state require counties to do to care for their inmates? Well, there weren't any, there weren't any state standards, none. You mentioned California. We have Title 15. It's a, it's a huge book. Uh, they had nothing. So now I'm looking for something that says, how, how, does a, how does this deputy become trained in not doing that? In other words, mm -hmm. giving prescription medicine to an inmate without a prescription, uh, without authorization from either a jail nurse or a doctor or whatever, when there's no state standard, which means he was probably never trained on how to do this. And he probably never knew that giving Valium to somebody that's intoxicated is not a good idea. You know, he's, he doesn't have a medical degree. I it might be common knowledge for a lot of people, but some people probably don't know that. So I kept looking and I kept looking and I came up with an administrative code, a state administrative code that says 
any correctional facility, which includes this one, must have a doctor uh, prescribe, and, uh, prescribe the medication that the inmate is going to take. In other words, it has to be, before it can be administered in a correctional setting, it has to be prescribed by a doctor for that setting. Correct. And it has to be administered by a, a medical professional. Well, if you look at, okay, you know, the, 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 this little county jail, yeah, they, they, they made a mistake, but how would they have reasonably known there's some administrative code in the state that no, probably nobody can find uh, that tells you how to do this? That there should be a, some jail standards. And, you know, my request when I got done with this case was, you know, and that's that's basically the, the state legislature's job is, is, is to do this. Correct. So, uh, you know, and there's a case where, you know, here these people are out doing the best job they can, but they don't really have very, very good guidance. Well, you know, aren't, aren't you surprised that when we go to these different states, because, you know, our, our team goes all over the country and, and some states are, are pretty squared away. Uh, they've got all sorts of standards. They've got some codes. They've got a lot of things that we as experts can draw on. Uh, to talk about what a reasonable officer would do under various circumstances. But then there's other states that really don't have anything, literally don't have an academy manual, you know, and, and, and very little training. So it, it, it's kind of disappointing. Well, what, what we find out, um, you and I find out, is let's say a case happened four years ago and it's finally getting to the federal civil rights court. And you start looking at their policies and procedures. Well, they've changed them all since the incident happened. Correct. Because they realized that what they had before when, the, when this incident occurred was inadequate. Yeah. Well, the horse is out of the barn, which if you're going to do some risk management, you, you want to get everything done right before the incident occurs. And, you know, and, just in our last seconds, I'll just, you know, tell the people that when experts review a case, we are reviewing under the guidelines and the rules and regulations and the policies and procedures that occurred at the time of that incident. And so even though things have changed after that incident, as they often do, that's not the standard in court that we hold those uh, involved parties accounted for. So that's correct. We're going to take one more break. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multinutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa. Award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. Hey, Bob, I've got a great term for you that you and I are well acquainted with, but maybe our listeners are not acquainted with, and that is the concept of a bifurcated investigation, B-I-F-U-R-C-A-T-E-D, bifurcated investigation. Uh, can you talk about that a little bit, and, and let's uh, work together and try to explain this for our listeners. 
Sure. Uh, I'm, I'm going to talk about just in general terms and not, not specific cases, but let's suppose an officer is involved in a, in a shooting, okay? And, uh, he, you know, the officer uh, shoots somebody who was pointing a gun at somebody and there's a shooting. There's going to be two types of investigations done here. One is going to, one is going to be a criminal investigation to uh, ascertain if the officer uh, committed any crime. In other words, you know, was there, was there a criminal uh, aspect of, of what the officer did? And, and they're also going to look at the, the uh, you know, what did the suspect do? So that's a, just a normal criminal investigation. They're also going to look at the officer and find out if the officer uh, complied with all the department rules and regulations. Uh, did he, did he uh, make all the required notifications? Um, did he, uh, you know, give the warnings and all the things that basically are going to be done by internal affairs. And, and we call that an administrative review. The one part of this investigation does not talk to the other part of this investigation. In other words, these are, what, as you said, bifurcated. There are two separate investigations to determine um, if there, number one, is there a criminal violation, and number two, <clears throat> if there's policy and procedures, because this is going to result in internal uh, in, in internal affairs investigation might result in discipline or termination. Correct. One is criminal. One is basically they're going to look at things like civil liability. They're going to look at, at the officer's training, his background when he was hired. In other words, do we have a negligent retention problem? Do we have a negligent hiring problem? They're going to look at, uh, you know, how many times this officer has been investigated and for what, what type of suspensions. And they're going and they're going to look at training issues. In other words, was this officer trained properly? Was this officer's training current? And all these things come together at the end. And basically what we get when you and I investigate these types of cases, <clears throat> whether, we're, whether we're representing the officer or, or representing the plaintiff, we're going to see all this. OK. Right. And officers, uh, sometimes they have the. Uh, idea that all this stuff is confidential and, and it can't be brought out. Well, I, here's what I have to say about that. In federal civil rights cases, it all comes out. If you're a department head or you're an administrator and you are, uh, you know, you've got a, what we call a problem child, um, all these things are going to come out and, and uh, they're going to come out in a, sometimes in a very expensive way when they, you start talking about civil liability, as, as you just mentioned. Sure. Now, I think what's interesting about what you brought up is something that people rarely see on, uh, you know, television cop shows, and they don't even see it on, on uh, documentaries that reflect real police investigations. And that is the whole issue that in the bifurcated investigation, as you correctly stated, Bob, the criminal investigators don't talk to the IA people. They don't talk to internal affairs. And so those are two separately run investigations. The next thing is, is it's not only an investigation of the individual involved officer, but it's an investigation by the department to find out if they had made any mistakes along the way with right. regards to policy and, and training and uh, how these officers are entrusted uh, with, the, with various responsibilities. I'll give you an example uh, because what you and I do, it, it, I don't. It doesn't matter what side we're representing. We're looking at the department as a whole. We're looking at what kind of a job the department does. For example, uh, we're going to look at your uh, your hiring practices, your background uh, uh, investigations, uh, your training, uh, not only your academy training, your field officer, your field training officer program, uh, and then your 
performance evaluation reports and uh, any internal affairs complaints uh, that the officers had. And I'll just give you an example. Um, and this happens. This is not anything new. It's, it's hard to keep police officers. It's hard to retain them because uh, the turnover rate in some areas is pretty high, especially if you're a low-paying department. You'll, uh, like yourself, you, you, we'll say you start in a small department and you go to a bigger department because you're, you're going to get paid more and you have more opportunities. It's a natural thing that happens. So small departments will try and hang on to people. Well, uh, that's, that's good, but if you do it in the wrong way, it can be really bad. And I'll give you an example. If you have, let's say, a problem officer who has done something really bad that they, where they should have been terminated or even criminally charged and you give them a, a two weeks suspension and you've got a history of three or four of these things with the officer when something really bad happens and you end up in federal civil rights court they're not going to be talking to that officer they're going to be talking to the department head they're going to say hey chief why, why do you have a policy of, of keeping these people when they're nothing but liability and you know i'm sure the, you know, the chief can't say, well, you know, we don't we can't fire anybody because we can't we can't uh, hire anybody. Correct. And that's that's just not a good reason. Right. And, Bob, you know, along this way where internal affairs comes in uh, also, when you mentioned federal civil litigation, there is actually a, a tort or actually a section of a tort in, in what, what they call 1983. It's in Title 42. Uh, section 1983 okay and basically this is the the foundation for all civil rights suits at, at the federal level but there is a uh, a type of suit that's called or an allegation that's called a Monell claim uh, that you're actually an expert in and it comes from uh, the United States Supreme Court decision of Monell versus the New York City Department of Social Services so yeah. even though it's not a police case it still affects uh, law enforcement litigation. Can you discuss that a little bit about deliberate indifference? And it, it, it affects everybody. For example, let's, let's just talk about the chief that I just, I just talked about here, sure. the fictional chief. If, if the chief knows that there's a lot of problems, if the chief knows that he, ha he or she has policies that should be revised and, and doesn't, if a, if a sheriff runs a jail where there's been a lot of jail deaths and doesn't take anybody's recommendation on how to fix it, uh, you can name all kinds of different scenarios here, but if you deliberately just don't do it, knowing that it's uh, bad for the inmates, it's bad for the citizens, it's not safe, um, you are going to be held liable for that. And the, the, I mean, again, this I go back to risk management, okay? If you know something's broken, then you need to fix it. If it's going to cost you some personnel and you're going to have to go out and, and hire and you're going to have to change your training or whatever, so what? Uh, you're going to, in the long run, you're going to be a lot better off than trying to just, uh, you know, patch things up short term and hope nothing bad happens, which is sure. what you and I see around the country. Well, sure. And, and you know, this Monell claim in part talks about uh, deliberate indifference. The, the department and the city, the municipality is deliberately indifferent to the civil rights uh, of a, a plaintiff or a class of plaintiffs in a particular case because the allegation would be that they have formal or informal customs and practices. So, you know, we're talking about uh, maybe they've got bad policies. Uh, maybe they have uh, bad internal affair investigations where they pretty much sweep things under the rug. 
maybe they cover stuff up. I actually had a, a big case I'm going to be talking about in a, in, in a future uh, program on a threat of evidence where the uh, sheriff of a department uh, where one of his deputies uh, killed a, a young girl uh, with blatant excessive force. And uh, it was like you said, I mean, this guy should have never been what we did our investigation. This guy should have never been hired in the first place. He had predicate criminal acts, uh, you know, dealing with controlled substances, uh, where he was actually selling uh, controlled uh, prescription medication that he had to other people. Right. Well, that's a class three felony, for God's sakes. And they knew this and they hired this guy. But when the sheriff did the initial investigation, uh, he said that this uh, this deputy had not violated uh, any department policies. Well, when, you know, I looked at it, I found not only did he violate 14 department policies, which were blatant violations, but I had three statutory violations. Uh, in the state where, uh, you know, this case happened. So when right. I went back over their internal affairs investigations, I found other uh, similar types of problems where they had basically ratified stuff. And, uh, and they ended up not going to court on that. They ended up settling that case for uh, pretty close to two and a half million dollars. Right. And, you know, going going back to you know, we just we just wrote up an ethics uh, uh, syllabus for for these uh, classes we're going to be giving, and one of the ones I I pointed out was the uh, case of the Oakland Riders, and I don't know if you recall them. Sure, I do. Going back, the, the, this was a group of uh, of officers that worked uh, you know the night shift, worked nar street narcotics, and they were making so many arrests that they were they were just hailed as supermen, and. Somebody should have said, now, wait a minute, this is this is too good to be true. What they were doing was they were planting evidence on people, uh, beating them up, uh, you know, false reports, everything that, you know, and these false reports were being approved. They weren't supervised. And what brought it to light was a brand new officer who had just graduated from the police academy. And they and they they put him in there to work some undercover. And he saw what was going on and exposed it. And of course, all these guys went to prison. And uh, and the officer went to another department and he was welcomed because he actually had some ethics. But this is this is a problem we're, we're seeing. Uh, I wouldn't say it's widespread, but when you see it, you, you sit there and you wonder, how come nobody did anything? You know, and usually, uh, you know, states, you know, state agencies are, are really guilty of issues like this, you know, like state prison systems and, uh, you know, agents, agencies of that nature. And that's because they're so uh, they're so big that uh, you know some of this stuff gets uh, either not noticed or it gets swept under the rug or lost in bureaucracy. But it's but it's wrong when it happens, and these types of things need to be investigated. And that's one of the things that we do at Martinelli and Associates uh, is we do independent investigations. I have one right now where I'm uh, reviewing an officer's actions uh, in a, in a southern state. And it uh, already went, uh, you know, through internal affairs. And I'm looking at everything that internal affairs is doing uh, because this is going to turn into an ad administrative hearing. And I have to make some findings and determinations. And I'm already seeing problems with the case. Yeah, I, you know, I've got one right now. It's a jail homicide where the, 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 the staff was so short. And this is a maximum security facility, including death row, where you've got mostly, uh, you know, gang members, people who just are the worst of the worst. And 
the staffing level was so low, and then they start adding more things to their workload, to the, to the uh, correctional officers' workloads, where it was actually absolutely impossible for them to, uh, to, to actually do a safe job. And you start looking into the files, and you start looking at the memos that were written, the, the uh, conversations that were had about everybody knew this was a ticking time bomb. This was going to happen. And it's, it, and it's because staffing levels were so low. They weren't, they weren't uh, uh, you know, this, this is the one area of the whole prison system for that state that should have been staffed adequately. These are the, the worst of the worst. Right. And it's all going to come out. It's all going to come out that, yeah, yeah, we, well, we just, uh, you know, took a calculator to risk and loss is what happened. Wow. You know, Bob, you've been a, a middle range manager, uh, you know, for, for a number of years before you retired. I mean, can you provide us with some insight on why you think these things happen at the administrative level where these people should be smart enough to know better? Where do you think they go wrong? So, you know, some of it's budget. Some of it's, well, we only got so much money and, you know, they'll, uh, you know, they'll cover themselves by saying, well, we could sure use some more money. And then when it's denied, they just get back in their desk and say, well, the money was denied. Nothing I can do. Well, there's a, there's a lot of things you can do. Um you can reallocate things. You can be creative. Uh, you, you can do what you have to do to make not only the inmates safe, but the officers safe. You and know, sometimes go, sometimes we're just institutionalized into this is the way we've always done it. And, you know, I think you're you're 100 percent right. You know, uh, I've been in the training uh, field for so many years and I get up on my soapbox uh, because the first thing that gets cut from a budget, and you know this because you, you had to have input into your department's budget, and you know you put you want to allocate money for training, right? And, right? and that's the first thing that gets cut in a budget, but when things go wrong, it's because people aren't well trained. Uh, wouldn't you agree that every, I think every single case we have, the center issue of that case in one way or another reverts back to training, doesn't it? Sure. And, and if you look at uh, a group like SWAT teams, SWAT teams are a specialized unit. Most departments put a lot of money in SWAT because when they go out, they're, everything they do is high risk. Everything they do is, is um, high risk entries. You know, uh, guns are going to be displayed and sometimes there's shots going to be fired. And ordinance, so, there's, there's gas bombs going off, there's flashbangs yeah. going off, there's pyrotechnics going off, all sorts of things that cause risk. Right, and they're, and they and they go through training. Our agency they they trained at least twice a month, and you know the sniper trained every week, because the sniper's job is one shot takes care of the problem, and that's their training. So you can imagine how much you know attention they get to what they do. Uh, same with canines. Uh, you know these high risk areas are ones they're you know they should be putting money in. If you've got a SWAT team that goes out and botches the whole thing and they find out they'd only train twice a year, I'd say as an agency, you have a problem. Right. And I, I, I absolutely agree with you. Well, Bob, it just kind of brings this show to a close. So I really want to thank you so much uh, for coming out again and, and uh, lending your expertise. Uh, you know, you made mention of our uh, new company, kind of online company, uh, starting up at the uh, in, end of May or beginning of June. And it is called ETC Forensic. It stands for Education, Training, and Certification. We're going to be serving the law enforcement, uh, forensic, medical, uh, school, social service, legal, and engineering company. And listen, if you're out there and you're paying attention to this show 
and uh, you're hearing all of these uh, forensic experts uh, talking about these absolutely fascinating cases we have. Just to let you know, you don't have to be a cop or a detective to become a forensic expert. You can actually get education, training, and certification beyond the college and university level that is actually more realistic and far more cost-effective. So just keep us in mind and look for our website coming up in the end of May, beginning of June. It's etcforensic.com. You're listening to Dr. Ron Martinelli, forensic criminologist and homicide and forensic expert, Bob Prevo, on a thread of evidence on America Out Loud.